Hey there, welcome back to the Nutrition Edit Podcast. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and today we're going to be talking about a subject that is close to home for me, which is emotional eating. My guest today is Trisha Nelson. She lost 50 pounds by identifying and healing the underlying causes of her emotional eating, and she's spent over 30 years researching the hidden causes of the addictive personality. Trisha is an emotional eating expert and TEDx speaker, and she's the author of the number one best-selling book, Heal Your Hunger, Seven Simple Steps to End Emotional Eating. Now, Trisha is the host of the popular podcast, The Heal Your Hunger Show, and she's a highly regarded speaker who has also been featured on NBC, CBS, KTLA, Fox, and The List. Today, we're going to talk about the difference between emotional eating and food addiction, how to differentiate between physical and emotional hunger, how to deal with obsessive food thoughts, manage stress before it drives you to the kitchen, and she's going to give you a few simple steps that you can take to overcome emotional eating. So I hope you enjoy the show and find it inspiring, and let's dive in. Welcome to the Nutrition Edit Podcast for high-performing women who want to up-level their health and feel their best in their bodies, careers, and personal lives. In this podcast, I'll sift through the latest nutrition and biohacking trends to filter out the bullshit, share what you really need to know, and help you put the good stuff into practice in a way that works for you. You'll get actionable tips from guest experts and myself on how to up-level your mindset, workouts, relationships, and environment, and start feeling like the badass woman you are. Join me as we bust through the bro science and male-centric health paradigm to help you achieve optimal performance, body, mind, and soul. Okay, here we go. Welcome back to the Nutrition Edit, everybody. I'm really excited about my guest today. With me is Trisha Nelson, the founder of Heal Your Hunger. And Trisha, thanks for joining me today. I'm stoked to have you here. Oh, so good to be here. Thank you. So I know, I can't remember how I came across you in the past, but I actually did your Heal Your Hunger training for coaches and it was really, really impactful and powerful. And so I wanted to have you on today just to tell us a little more about this big subject of emotional eating. And why don't we just kick off by you telling us, you know, a little about your history and your story. Yeah, it totally was personal. It came from my personal experience, which is good because then I know a lot about it. <laughs> so, um, right. so yeah, I mean, back, uh, as far back as I can remember, I was an emotional eater. And of course I did not know I was an emotional eater. I just thought I like food, you know? And so I like yeah. to eat. I like to cook. I love to go out to restaurants, you know, serve food to other people. It was all about food and that would have been probably fine, except that I gained weight really easily. And by age 21, I was 50 pounds overweight, which was really a miserable experience, of course. And I, I had like this roll on my tummy that I would scrunch up in my hands and imagine cutting off like you cut fat off the side of a steak. And I thought about getting some crazy disease where I'd automatically lose weight without having to diet. <laughs> So, so I was having all these crazy thoughts and, and really it came down to, I couldn't diet and stay thin. Like I would, I was a yo-yoer. So I'd lose weight, gain weight. I was all over the map and it was really uncomfortable for me. I had like five different sizes of clothes in my closet. Cause I never knew what size I'd be, you know, I'd be like up yeah. 40, down 30, up 20. I was all over. And it was just very embarrassing for me. You know, people would see me at different sizes. And so I just had a lot of shame around my eating behaviors. And 
I did a TEDx talk and um, I, I kind of reenacted my garbage eating. And, and what that's about is, you know, I would binge on food and then I'd eat so much of it that I'd be like, I'm never eating this again, you know, and then I throw it out. And later I'd be like, oh, there's still cookies in that package I threw out and I'd go back and get them. And so I, you know, I had a lot of shame about that kind of behavior, you know, and of course I thought I was the only one who ever did this kind of thing, which is so not true, you know? So, yeah. So it was just very hard for me. Relief came for me when I stopped dieting and I got help to face the emotional eating. So when I finally realized, wow, I am an emotional eater, you know, no diet is going to save me from this emotional bond I have with food that keeps me compelled to eat. And so that's when things started to change for me is when I started to address my relationship with food. And thankfully, I did and, you know, developed this system based on my own changes. I developed this system to help people heal from emotional eating and then heal your hunger came into being, you know, my company and my podcast. And, and I just, you know, I find that it's just, to me, it's the crux of the problem that nobody's talking about basically. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. And I had a similar experience. I was 50 pounds overweight at one point and a big time binge eater and purger for years Mm. and I had very similar behaviors. So, you know, that was part of my journey as well. And one of the reasons that I also got into this, this work of, you know, health coaching and nutrition coaching is I just feel like that's part of the, the beauty that can come out of our struggles, right? Is that we can help others. So yeah, you've had such a massive impact in, in your work and I love it. And I think it's, it's so crucial and it opens up that conversation. Like we need to be talking about this and addressing it because it's not part of the mainstream narrative with right. diet culture, right? No, and definitely. within the wellness industry, it's not addressed a lot. Yeah. And I love okay. your, I love your work and I love that you are, you know, really homing in on this for people. It's so, so important. Thank you. Hello, amazing woman. If you're enjoying the show, I would love to connect with you over on Instagram. Just find me at J Oliver Wellness and DM me the words nutrition edit. I'll add you to my close friends list where I share exclusive content and you'll be the first to know about my upcoming masterclasses and programs and get early access to my waitlist. Okay, now back to the show. And um, well, I'm just so excited to have this discussion today. And when it comes to emotional eating, how does someone tell the difference between I'm an emotional eater or I'm a food addict or I just like to eat a lot? Can you differentiate those for us? Totally. And it's a really important distinction. I mean, I did think I just like to eat a lot, you know, until I started to observe my behaviors around food and they definitely were not normal, you know, and they weren't the same as my friends. I mean, I used to go out to lunch with friends and they would like order a sandwich and it would come with fries and they'd eat their sandwich and pick up their fries. And I would eat my fries and pick up my sandwich. (laughs) You know, I'm like, the fries are the best part, (laughs) you know? And I'd be like, how could people just sit there and leave fries on their plate? I was like, how, you know, I can't do that. So I sort of started to realize that I'm different around food 
than other people are. And so that's really when I started to realize, wow, my relationship is emotional, you know? So my feeling, just to answer your question, you know, my feeling is that we're all emotional eaters to some degree. We have an emotional connection with food because, hey, we got to subsist as a species. We better have an emotional connection with food. So I think we're all kind of baseline emotional eaters. However, you know, not everybody does what I did with food. And so I think it is a spectrum, okay? And we're all in different places on the spectrum of emotional eating. And on the low end is emotional eating. And on the high end is uh, basically food addiction, where it's taken on a life of its own and it really mirrors an addiction like alcoholism or drug addiction. And unfortunately, we don't see it that our culture doesn't see that. It's like, oh, ha, 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 you know, I'm going to eat a box of donuts. But, you know, for the, the person who really is addicted to food, it's not a ha, ha matter. It's really painful and shameful. You know, so on that spectrum, the way to qualify kind of where somebody is on that spectrum, and I actually have a quiz that does that for people um, on my website, but it's basically two things primarily. One is the level of control someone has, um, which means can they scale back? Like, like if they go on a cruise, gain five pounds, come back, feel kind of like my pants don't fit, I have muffin top, you know. They, they jog extra for a couple of weeks, cut out sweets, and boom, they lost those five pounds. That's someone with a lot of control. So the, they would be on the lower end of the spectrum. Whereas somebody who is more addicted on the higher end of the spectrum, they would have very little control. Once they started to overeat, like let's say, you know, they were doing good on a new food regimen. And then at some point they're like, I really just want to eat cake. And so they eat cake. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, but you know, what's cake without ice cream? And like, yeah, but I really need something salty with my sweets. So let me have some chips. And you know, they fall down the rabbit hole and then it's, they're in the cycle and they can't get back to that place where they were doing so good. That's somebody who has more of an addictive habit around food. So they don't have much control. They can't just scale back or course correct so easily as a person who went on the cruise. The other way to determine where somebody ends up on the spectrum is with the consequences. So again, five pounds on a cruise that you take off really fast, that's, that's not a big consequence, right? But somebody who falls down the rabbit hole and can't get back into control, that's somebody who could easily gain 10 pounds, you know, in a few weeks and feel awful, completely mortified. And then they do that over and over. And before you know, 50 pounds has come on. And I will say the longer somebody does that, you know, and you and I both know people who have been on that roller coaster ride for decades, that, you know, the more decades you do that, the more consequences you have. Your joints are aching, you have arthritis, you have autoimmune issues, you're pre-diabetic or diabetic, you know, you've got heart disease. It, I mean, those consequences mount, you know, with the years that we do this damage to our body. So again, you know, an addiction is something that, and again, people are like, how many addicted, addicted food do you have to eat? Well, that's true. That's why it's the hardest of all the addictions to overcome. Harder. Yeah, you can't. That's available and socially acceptable, legal. Exactly. Um, Everybody's pushing it. On you. Yeah, exactly. So 
you know, that's really uh, it's so important. You know, people kind of minimize it or, or feel bad that they are addicted and like, oh, what's wrong with me? I shouldn't. This is so stupid. It's just, you know, cookies or whatever. But, you know, it really is an addiction. And typically we've been doing it longer than other like a drug addict or alcoholic has been doing their drug. You know, I mean, typically it does start at a pretty young age, which means it's more ingrained for us which means it's harder to overcome. It's harder to dislodge from our lives. So um, plus when we do it in spite of doctor's orders, I mean, it's so frustrating when the doctor says, hey, you've got to cut down, you've got high cholesterol, you need to, you know, stop eating bacon and sugar, you know, and we don't, that's an addictive habit. If you do it in spite of dangerous consequences, there's something wrong there. We got to take a look at that. And, and so when our relationship with food is more addictive, it's not going to be something we're going to wish away on our own. Right. Yeah. And I remember being in that headspace of thinking, will I ever be able to be free from obsessing about food and thinking about food 24 seven? I mean, there was definitely a point in my life where I just thought, am I going to live my life like this, because mm. of how it is, yeah, and just feeling so in bondage to that, and thinking this is insane, like on a logical level, like what the hell is happening here, you know? Yeah. And for me, the reality was that I was anesthetizing with food, and there was pain and trauma that was unaddressed, right? Yeah. And that's how it was manifesting. And I was always the good girl. I never was a drinker, and I didn't do drugs, and I didn't smoke or whatever. But man. I could take down a package of Oreos in one sitting. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Having come out the other end of that, thankfully and gratefully, you know, we can tell you, Trisha and I, everybody listening, that this there is freedom from this, 100%. And, yeah. you know, that's why I have you here today is to talk about this. And I think so many of the clients that I work with, they've tried so many different diets. And, you know, as as we both know, what, 95, 98% of, of diets fail. Um, so talk a little bit about that and where that intersects with, with emotional eating, because I think that that's something that's just not addressed on the diet front. You can have the best nutrition plan in the world, but you know, yeah. if, if you're coming from a place of food addiction, then what? Totally. And the thing is, it's even more frustrating when you know better and you can't do better, you know. So yeah. pe people typically, in order to try to get to the bottom of it, they're researching online, they're buying courses, they're reading books, you know, so they're, they've, their head is full of knowledge. So it's, it's not for lack of information. I mean, they're, you know, right. they're not stupid, right? They know that salads are probably a better choice than hot dogs and burgers, but you know, it's like we choose unhealthy foods anyway, and that's what makes it so crazy and frustrating. And I believe that 98% of all diets fail because of emotional eating, because it's not as simple as just cutting certain foods out of your diet. I mean, we've all done that, but then we go back to those foods, you know? So it's like, okay, what is that about? Why would we do that in spite of doctor's orders, you know, or you know, admonishings? And so, my experience, it is that emotional connection to food. I mean, if you think about it, a diet just takes away your main coping tool. You know, I mean, I used food to cope yeah. with everything, right? With stress, yeah. with disappointment, with boredom, worry, you know, rejection, everything, Ty being tired, 
I mean, I use food all the time to get through life. And so if you tell me, okay, let's take away all those foods, the ooey gooey chewy ones that you love to turn to, you know, when life is hard, let's take all those away and you'll be happy, you know, and that's, it doesn't pan out. I mean, yeah, you might feel good, you know, your body's detoxing and then all of a sudden you lost the bloat and the pants are looser. That feels great. You know, we all have new diet syndrome where we're like, like I'm doing it and I'm going to the gym and you're kind of in that, like, you know, we're getting the job done, but it pales, you know, for me, it was about week at week two after a, a couple weeks, I would start to not care, you know, that I was on this new plan and I, it started to get really hard. And then I'd be like, how much longer can I keep this up? So then it just becomes drudgery. And if it is drudgery, you can't keep it up for very long. And the reason why it's drudgery is because, you know, food was how we got by in life. And all of a sudden we don't have that. So everything that we were stuffing with food is yeah. coming back to the surface, but we don't have any coping tools. We don't know what to do about it. So basically, uh, we're like, yo, life is hard. You know, give me my sugar. You know, I got to go back to yeah. it because I just, you know, all, all you did is take everything away from me, but give me no solution for dealing with stress and disappointment and boredom and worry. So to me, it's really the emotions that we haven't found new ways to cope with. That, to me, that's why the diets fail. It's like people have no idea. Of course, we all want to be thin, but can we handle the amount of emotions we have to process in order to be in a thin body? If we don't have our protection of food and fat, you know, we've got to have new tools and, and diets don't give you new yeah. tools. Exactly. Yeah. I, I um, often tell clients, especially when they've dealt with even previous addictions, you know, you see people at AA meetings and they're all outside drinking coffee and smoking. smoking yes. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's probably a much less harmful addiction for them and it's replacing something. But if we, we can't just take one thing away and then put nothing in its place, like your brain wants that dopamine hit, like you, those unpleasant emotions, like you said, if we don't have these other coping tools in place, if we don't have support around that, there's just this sort of gaping hole of this coping mechanism, like you said, that, okay, well now what? Like all of a sudden, all these unpleasant emotions are, are flooding your head and your body, right? And so it's overwhelming. It can be really overwhelming to go through that. And having experienced that firsthand, I just remember feeling like I was falling off a cliff mm. and that there was no safety net. You know, it was terrifying. It was like, oh my God, because I had nothing else in place. And, you know, I was lucky enough to go through a pretty intensive therapy program for people with eating disorders, but not everybody has access to that. So, when people are trying to recognize, I mean, I think some people, obviously, they're going to recognize this in themselves quite easily. They're going to hear the sort of things that you and I are talking about and be like, yep, sounds familiar. But I think there are other aspects to emotional eating that we're not always aware of that can exacerbate the problem or even drive us to eat emotionally more, just circumstantial things. And I think, too, you know, like you taught in our course, that there are certain personality traits or I wouldn't say personality, but um, because, you know, that it insinuates that that's more who we are as a permanent thing. But I would say tendencies, right? Uh, behavioral tendencies that we have that are more common 
amongst emotional eaters that can contribute to that. So tell us a little bit about that and how there's more to this emotional eating than just being like, oh, I'm, I'm sad or happy, so I'm going to dive yeah. first to a bag of potatoes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It really is traits of the emotional eater that go unnoticed in the conversation. And yet, in my experience, they really drive the compulsion to eat, you know? And I mean, it's it, people are always trying to find a pill or tapping or something that'll take away their cravings. But for me, the cravings are primarily emotional and, and we create them by our behaviors. Because it feels like when you have a craving for chocolate, you're like, you feel like you got struck with it. Like you're just like, do, 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 do. And then all of a sudden, I've got to have chocolate, you know? And so people think it just happens to them. But if it does, that's a very powerless feeling and doesn't leave you with much solution except waiting for the next craving to strike. Whereas, you know, looking at it from a new perspective and realizing a lot of these cravings we do create by how we show up in the world, then we have some choice. You know, we have some choice. We can make different decisions. Yeah. So to me, it's great news. And so I have something in my book, and as you learned in my program too, it's called The Anatomy of the Emotional Eater. And this is 24 personality traits, you know, or tendencies as you, you call them, which I like. There are things that we fall into out of habit that have nothing to do with food and yet has everything to do with how we are with food, the cravings that seem to strike us. And so as an example of this, I'm going to bring up the number one trait, which I see in emotional eaters, and that's people pleasing. So emotionally eaters are total people pleasers. Like we're always trying to please, always trying to get the gold star, the atta girl. You know, we just live for that validation. It feels so good. And it's, you know, it's a normal thing to want to be validated. That's, that's a human trait, but we kind of take it too far, you know? So, so we, kill ourselves practically for this validation. We take on extra work. You know, we burn the candle at both ends. We say yes anytime we're asked without discerning if we can really handle it. Um, and, and we're always trying to please. We don't want anybody to be upset with us or to not like us. And this sets us up in that cycle of overdoing, you know, overdoing, getting burned out, you know, exhausting our adrenals. and and we're doing it. And, and the reason why this has something to do with food, because people might be wondering, is that when we are exhausted all the time, what do we do? We, we reach for quick energy, you know, chocolate and yep. coffee, right? So, so that sets us up to eat. But also, when we try to please people, they're rarely as pleased as we want them to be. You know, so the kudos, right. <laughs> the kudos we're looking for don't always come. And then we're like, like, hello, hello, I, I knocked myself out. Where, where's my parade, you know? And so when it doesn't come, we're also resentful, like at how underappreciated we are. And that fuels kind of the, I deserve it binge, like screw them. They're not going to acknowledge me. I'll, I'll reward myself with my favorite Belgian chocolate. You know, I think too, I think often people will, if they don't get the validation they seek, they think, well, I'm just not good enough. I've got to work harder. Right. They internalize it. Yep. So true. So it's, yeah. And then this cycle just is exacerbated. So, 
So that's a problem. So people give me the next diet. Let me go on a diet. But if they don't do anything about their overdoing tendencies, you know, their, their people pleasing tendencies, their resentment, you know, which comes from their own choices, you know, if people don't address that, that's why they're going back to the food. It's like they've got way too much stress, way too many emotions that aren't addressed. And then before you know it, they're using food to cover that stuff up instead of addressing it, instead of changing their ways, instead of putting boundaries on their time, saying no to the invitation once in a while. No, these are real life things we must change if we ever expect to have a, a different experience with food. I call it acting your way into right thinking instead of thinking your way into right action. Yeah. You know, and that's oh, really that's to good. me. Yeah. That's the, that's what has to happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, anytime that we take action, even when it's small, especially when it's small, because I think that's most doable for us to start with small steps. That's when we can start to feel more empowered and more in control of whatever's happening in our lives. And that can have a positive snowball effect, right? Like it can yeah. build momentum for us as we start to take totally. steps and learn like, okay, I'm not going to die because I told somebody I'm not going to, you know, bake for the kids' classes. <laughs> exactly. Whatever yep. it is, right? Yeah. I mean, but I remember just, God forbid, I would inconvenience someone or not over-accommodate somebody because that might mean rejection or that might mean scolding of some some kind. Right. One point in my life that just felt unbearable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. It's such a yeah. crazy kind of knee jerk reaction. Like, please, please don't be mad at me. Please don't be mad at me. I'll do anything, anything to avoid disapproval. You know, but that's part of the journey is to learn that yeah. we can actually live our own selves. We can make our choices that serve us. You know, in our health, our highest good. And let other people have their feelings, you know, and the truth is, if we do take time for ourselves, which I think as women, we're kind of conditioned to believe is selfish, we have to put ourselves first in terms of self-care. You know, it's like putting the oxygen mask on in the plane. Like, how can you help people around you put on their mask if you can't breathe? So it's really not selfish. All it does is enable us to be more present for other people and be present in a way that's nice, you know, versus bitchy and snappy and disgruntled, right? So everybody wins when we do take care of ourselves. I totally agree. And I think one thing that's awfully scary for people, and maybe you can speak to this a little bit, is often their social circles, you know, if your social circle revolves around unhealthy food choices, alcohol, whatever partying, whatever it might be, that can feel really threatening to change that because it sort of threatens the whole structure of your social support system. So yeah. I've seen people when they do start to change their lifestyles and make choices that serve them well, you know, people either get on board, the people in their life either get on board with that, they're inspired, they're supportive, they might start to take steps themselves, or it sort of shines a light on the fact that maybe others in your life need to make those changes, but they're not there yet. They're not ready for it. And so they don't want to face that quite yet. And so they will actually distance themselves. And I think that could be really hurtful sometimes, but what's your experience with coaching people through that sort of a, a situation or transition or fear about that? 
Yeah, it is hard. People will distance themselves or even try to sabotage, you know, and it's just, it's not conscious. I mean, nobody consciously tries to sabotage us, but you know, the spouse that brings home baked goods after you've announced that you're choosing a healthier path, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, what's that about? You know, and it's, it is a threat. Yeah. And people, you know, if they're not there yet, if they don't feel like they are ready to make those changes and they see you making those changes, they can either come with you or they can like try to, you know, dampen your spirit so that you come back to where they are, you know, and it is a, it's a dynamic that does happen. And that's why, you know, being in community with other people who are making changes is so important because then you have your people, you know, you have support, you have yeah. people cheering you on. Yeah. Because it's not, you know, I mean, being an emotional eater is kind of a weird thing, even though gazillions of people are emotional eaters, but not everybody's self-professed. So it can seem like a weird thing. And, and it just helps to be around people who understand how you are around food. I mean, I can't even believe how much response I've gotten from my TEDx talk, which is specifically about emotional eating, because everybody's living with this secret. Like everybody's like, oh my God, I'm so bad. I can't believe I did that, blah, blah, blah but not realizing it's so common, you know? So when we are in community with others, when people hear you and me talking about this, like in a matter of fact way, you know, it brings comfort to people who have been living in isolation and shame. And that only exacerbates the problem, of course, you know, just drives us to eat more. So that's so important to be around those who do get us because those we're married to or are in family with, you know, those people, if they don't get it, there's a disconnect, you know, there's just at best, it's a disconnect at worst, there's derision and, you know, sabotage. So finding our people is so, so important. And just understanding that people, this is a big deal for people. Like, and also it's a dance. Like my, my experience, it is a family condition. It's true for alcoholism and yeah. other, other addictions as well Is everybody plays their role. Yeah. Everybody's got their role to play. If you all of a sudden up and change your role, if you're no longer the helpless one who can't stick to a diet that everybody's trying to help, if you're now like you're on a plan, it's working for you, you've got your community cheering you on and you're like gaining in self-confidence and effectiveness in your life. You know, what happens to the role of everybody else who used to be the ones rescuing us? Like they need a new role, right? And yeah. so, and they may not be ready for a new role, in which case it's like, hey, get back there. Like get, get helpless again, would you? You know, like <laughs> it's time to make time, you know, grow. Yeah. You know, right. because if you don't change, I don't have to change. And so there's a lot of family dynamics. And again, it's not conscious. It's it's just happening under the surface, you know, and, and it, it is a family condition. So it's just so important that people get the proper support um, so they can make these changes. And we are, I mean, we'll reiterate, this is the hardest of all addictions to overcome because you have to eat. Yes. You can't stop eating, you know, and I liken it to trying to take a tiger out of the cage, you know, and pet the kitty three times a day and then put it back in the cage without getting your backside torn off, <laughs> you know, so that is not easy, right? So give yourself a break if you're having struggles because that's, you're dealing with the hardest of all addictive habits, in my opinion. Oh, I absolutely agree a hundred percent. And 
you know, you don't have people pushing heroin or cocaine on your television and your radio and yeah. <laughs> billboards <laughs> and signage everywhere you go at the checkout line in the grocery store, right? But it's yeah. so, it's in every aspect of our lives, in our face. And sadly, the stuff that's in our face the most is the worst, most addictive, least nutritious stuff. It's the pure sugar. Oh, yeah. Anti-calorie foods, all those things that, yeah, they'll give you that nice little dopamine hit. And they will keep you coming back for more. In one of my episodes, I think it's number three, two or three, I talk about how foods are actually chemically addictive and they're designed to be that way. Is mm, that keeps yeah. lots and lots of money coming into these huge companies. So yep. I think recognizing that to some degree too. And recognizing, you know, when it comes to these family dynamics, social dynamics, that we are not responsible for everyone else's emotions. It's not our job to manage yep. their emotions and to keep everybody comfortable. Right. We can't do that. We, ha- we can only do what we need to do and what serves us well and, you know, figure out what that is and pursue that. And it's up to them to get on board or not, but it's, it's not your responsibility to manage the emotions of everyone around you. We have to let go of that, that desire and effort. That we 100%. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. So when we're talking about cravings and I think just hunger in general, I know for me, I've, finally gotten to the place where I can really differentiate between actual physical hunger or a craving. You know, sometimes I say like physical hunger, that's, you're going to feel it in your stomach, the cravings in your head. But for some people, they feel it everywhere or nowhere. It just depends. So how does one differentiate between that emotional and physical hunger? Yeah, it's not easy. I mean, you know, I've been doing this work for so long and yet sometimes I'll be like, I'm so hungry. <laughs> and it's very clear that I I am not starving. You know, I have been well fed. I am not starving. You know, so it amazes me how much emotional hunger can mimic physical hunger. Um, and so you well know that I teach something called three meal magic which is eating three meals with nothing in between. And I find that to be a really, really helpful tool because if I am trying to convince myself I'm really hungry, I can kind of have a little conversation like with little Trish and say, okay, what's really going on? Because it's, I had a good breakfast. Like I'm not, I'm not one to skip meals, you know, that it's an only yeah. a trap for failure, you know, a setup for failure. I'm going to pay for it later in a late night binge. So I don't skip meals. And so if I've had a healthy breakfast and I'm putting four or five hours between breakfast and lunch, you know, then, then I'm probably not actually starving. Like my head's trying to tell me I am, you know, in which case it's probably emotional. But if I didn't have that to refer to, if my eating was erratic and I was doing intermittent fasting and going, you know, umpteen hours between meals and I wasn't on a regular schedule of eating, I wouldn't know what's what, you know? And that's why for the emotional eater, I'm not a big fan of intermittent fasting. I mean, I like to put 12 hours between my dinner and my breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to go too far and get too hungry because then you know, you're, you've got the alarm signals going off, like, oh my God, I'm starving. And, and for emotional eaters, it goes way back for us. And so it can be a, a red alert situation where I feel like I'm dying, even though I'm not. You know, if food saved my life as a kid, if I had trauma as a, a kid and food was the only thing I had to turn to, there's a button in there that says food will save your life. 
right? And if you keep me away from food for too long, those those alarms are going to go off. And then I'm going to end up overeating as if my life depends on getting right. more food into me. So it's just a yeah. disabling way of eating. So I love the three meal magic because it's just, it's very predictable. It's very consistent. My body loves it right? Because it knows I'm never going to mess with, you know, my eating schedule. I'm always going to get those meals in. So it's just a beautiful way of being, but it does, you know, what it allows me to do is feel my feelings in between my meals, you know, which is something I'd never done before. Um, So it's really, really important that I learn, like, hunger is not a terrible thing, you know, in order to heal my hunger, I have to feel some hunger. But if I'm snacking all day long, I'm not going to feel much at all. And then I can't heal anything. Oh, absolutely. And I think another beautiful benefit of eating that way, and I always encourage my clients to give themselves a four to five hour window between meals is because if we're snacking and eating all the time, like it's really quite hard on our digestive system. Like your body's yeah. to be in a constant state of digesting and trying to absorb nutrients. It's hard in your gut. And it keeps that kind of constant signal. It's like your brain gets used to getting fed several times a day. Like it's going to signal like, hey, feed me again. Like right. if you have pets, you know, like they have these amazing internal clocks. They know exactly when dinner time <laughs> it's yep. hits. And it's <laughs> like, I, I know when it's six o'clock. I don't have to look at any clock. I know because those little dogs are around my feet and they're like, come on, mom. And our brains are kind of the same way. So I think sometimes too, that initial transition into the three meals a day only, your brain is going to be asking for those snacks, like, but it does go away. That's the beauty of it. Like it does get so much easier. And then once you're out of that habit, man, it's so liberating. And yes, it's, it can be scary to face those emotions that surface, but you know, it's better than being a slave to them the rest of your life. Absolutely. No question about it. Yeah, it takes practice. You know, it's not easy to do. It takes practice, but it gets easier with practice because you sort of retrain your system to know you're okay and you're not actually starving. Food is coming, but let's take a little look into our emotions and learn about those in the meantime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what are maybe three things or your top recommendations for people if they want to start taking steps towards healing their emotional eating or food addiction? Where can people start? Yeah, I would say first, I mean, we touched on it earlier. I would say, take a look at your busy schedule. Okay. Um, Because most of us are too busy. And that stress, you know, that stressful schedule is really driving us. It's driving our emotions. It's driving our adrenals. It's making us tired. um, And it's also keeping us distracted and unable to even know what our emotions are. So distracted and depleted. Yeah. So that's number one is take a look at your schedule. What can you delegate? What can you ditch? You know, what can you get help with? Um, support with. That's really going to be important. We're so used to trying to do it all ourselves, like that has to change. And then the next thing I would do is set up a morning routine, you know, one where you're like the first thing in the morning, you're putting money in your spiritual bank account. 
And I call it that yeah. because, you know, if we don't do that later in the day, we're exhausted and we're, again, chocolate and coffee. Like that's what we're reaching for, for quick energy. Whereas, you know, if you've put money in your spiritual bank account, you have something to take withdrawals from. You can take those withdrawals throughout the day when stress starts to, you know, mount. Um, but if we haven't started our day putting money in the account, we're going to be in the red very quickly. So that's really important. You know, whether it be breathing exercises, meditation, I like to meditate writing, journaling, reading spiritual literature, going for a walk in nature, whatever feeds your soul. Yeah. You know, it's not food yeah. we're really hungry for. We're really undernourished spiritually. We're living on internet, Instagram, yeah. yeah, media, TV. It is not feeding our souls. We've got to start nourishing ourselves at a deeper level. So that's super important. And then the other thing we haven't talked about is don't get on the scale regularly, you know, like stay off the scale. God, yeah, that is <laughs> It's not even good you know, data. It's not good data. No, exactly. <laughs> so just, yeah. yeah, if you give the scale the power, the power to make you feel good, it, you also give it the power to make you feel bad. And it does both really well and neither matters, right? What matters is how we're feeding ourselves and how we're, you know, nourishing ourselves on a deeper level. And addressing the stress. So um, that's just really, really important. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I love those steps. And I'm just so glad you joined me today. This is really great conversation. We'll have to do it again sometime and we'll do a deep dive yeah. a little more specific. So sure. yeah, let's, let's look at that down the road. But any, any final thoughts or anything that we didn't cover today that you want to share with people? I'll include Trisha's information in the show notes so that you can find her and you can take that quiz on her website. Thank you. Yeah, I have a podcast, The Heal Your Hunger Show. Which is awesome. Um, no. Yeah. No, it's just really, uh, I just encourage people to start taking care of themselves and putting themselves first. You know, it's, it's an important message. I think we, especially as women, we all need that message. And it's time. If we don't take care of ourselves, you know, nobody else will or can. And so it's so, yeah. so important. Absolutely. I will throw one last thought in. And I think that this is for you parents out there. I think, like you mentioned before, we women are sort of expected to do everything. We're supposed to be super women, amazing moms, amazing social life. We have the perfect body. We've got the perfect career. We're, you know, all these things. And it's kind of insane. And <laughs> we're conditioned to think that self-care is selfish. Like we're being selfish if we take time out for ourselves or if we stand up for our needs. And right. I would argue that, especially as parents, the opposite is true because you're modeling to your kids. Whatever you're doing, that's an example. They're going to be paying closer attention than you realize, and they're going to emulate that in the future. So you're right. doing a huge disservice by not modeling that self-care behavior and you know, being true to yourself and standing up for your needs and demonstrating what to do with food when, hey, this doesn't serve me well, or that does serve me well, versus this is bad, this is good. And coming at it from a place of not moralizing our food choices, but just honoring our bodies, right? And our souls. 100%. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining me. I love this conversation and we'll definitely do it again sometime. Yeah. Thanks for having me. And thanks for the beautiful work you're doing in the world. I'm so glad that you are showing people how to be healthy and be self-caring. It's beautiful. 
Well, thank you, Trisha. I feel the same way about you and excited to see what you have happening next. Thank you. Good to be with you. Hey there. Thanks for hanging out with me today. And if you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave me a quick review. Also check out the show notes for links to connect, follow, and share this podcast and for information featured in each episode. See you next time. I am not a doctor and the content here should not be taken as medical advice. All information in this podcast is for informational purposes only, does not constitute medical advice, and does not establish any kind of practitioner or coach-client relationship. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Do not disregard medical advice or delay seeking medical advice because of information you hear in this podcast or any other, and do not start or stop any medications without speaking to your health provider. Always seek the advice of a qualified health practitioner before undertaking a new health regimen. This podcast and website represents the opinion of Jeannie Oliver and guests to the show. Opinions of guests are their own and do not reflect the opinions of Jeannie Oliver Wellness LLC or our producers.